When I look in the mirror, I don't see wrinkles. When I look in the mirror, I see hair on my head, not my shoulder. Hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the fountain of truth. Fountain of truth about what? Well, the fountain of truth about aging. But today, today we have something extremely special. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Belsky, and he's going to ask us this question. Do you really want to know how you're aging? Is that something you would like to psych out about others? Well, he has been part of an incredibly, incredibly successful project that has to do with finding out the pace of our aging. Not just how old we are biologically or chronologically, We've been talking about that with regard to biomarkers and so on for a long time. But how fast are we aging? That's a little bit different as to how our biology matches up with our chronology. We're going to find out all about this and maybe what you can do to slow down the pace of your aging. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Belsky. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Really pleased to be here. All right. So let's let's just dive in right now. Tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing so you can set the stage for how you're doing this and looking at the pacing of how we age in a very different way from the usual biomarkers that we've been talking about on this show for a while. Okay. Well, I think to begin to set the stage, we first have to talk about uh, aging as a, a biological process. So I think um, in, in general, we tend to think about aging as uh, the passage of days on the calendar is something that happens to everybody in the same way. Um, but increasingly in biology and medicine, we're thinking about aging as a process that actually is a, a modifiable cause of many of the chronic diseases that disable and ultimately kill us as we get older. Uh, in fact, aging itself is the leading risk factor uh, for most of the chronic diseases that we think about uh, in, in older adults, uh, heart disease, diabetes, many cancers, and so forth. Um, and, and over the past few decades, uh, molecular biologists have begun to develop an understanding of cellular level changes that accumulate with the passage of time and make up uh, the, the biological substance of this process of aging. What's really interesting about these discoveries is that when uh, these molecular biologists give drugs or uh, induce genetic manipulations in animals, uh, to counteract these molecular changes, they can actually extend the period of healthy lifespan in organisms like uh, C. elegans worms, fruit flies, uh, or mice. Um, and now we're on the verge of beginning to translate some of these therapies uh, to people so that we might be able to slow down the process of aging with the aim of preventing or delaying onset of multiple different chronic diseases simultaneously. Um, so that's that's kind of the backdrop to what we're up to, which is an effort to devise measurements that can capture this biological process of aging in real time, most critically to provide outcome measures for randomized controlled trials that will test whether compounds that effectively slow aging in animals may show promise to do the same thing in humans. Now, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot here is that we're at a tipping point. We call it the tipping point of aging. And we've talked about the confluences of many things happening. One is that there are many geroscientists that are actually uh, imploring, I'll, I'll go that far, the FDA, 
to say that aging is a disease. Why do they want to say aging is a disease? Because if aging is a disease, then some of the research that could prevent or delay the diseases of aging can be funded. And let's just get to the fact that funding is critical to all these things. I know you have some NIH grants and so on. And I've been uh, interviewing folks from the NIA, the NIH. Funding is very important. So we have a controversy here. We have a cultural issue of, do we want to look at aging as a disease? And then we have a practical issue that we can delay and prevent and look into more of the research that you're doing if we call aging a disease. I don't know if, if you, you folks in, in looking at this have been thinking about that, that very issue. It's a translational science issue, but it could have a big cultural impact on ageism and so on, as we're seeing with COVID. Has there been any discussion about that when you were doing this kind of research? This is a really interesting and important question. Uh, and as you say, it, it sort of has these ramifications in terms of how the public understands the phenomena of aging, but also in terms of what we're able to do as scientists as we pursue therapies that might uh, modify it. Um, I, I think that for myself and most of the scientists that I work with and speak with, we don't tend to think about aging itself as a disease per se. Um, instead, Aging as a biological process uh, is something that makes us vulnerable to many different chronic diseases. Uh, that's quite apart from aging as a process of growth and development that goes on across our entire lives and uh, a, an entire uh, different body of science concerns itself with studying. Um, the founding director of the Butler Aging Center at Columbia, uh, where I work, uh, Ursula Staudinger, uh, is, for example, uh, a researcher who spent a lot of time studying that lifelong process of human development and the many positive aspects uh, of aging. Um, and, and Bob Butler himself, our namesake, uh, was, a, was a critical advocate for that uh, conceptualization of aging. So we don't want to take anything away from an understanding of aging as a process of lifelong growth and development. Uh, as we begin to think about aging as a biological process that increases our vulnerability to multiple different chronic diseases. Um, to speak to the legal sort of issue that you raised, the major concern with the FDA is that if aging is not a disease, you cannot get uh, what's called an indication uh, to treat it with a drug. Right. Uh, and that can impede the conduct of randomized trials to test efficacy of novel compounds uh, to intervene on the process of aging. And um, I think slowly the geroscience community is making progress with the FDA to devise uh, new language and understanding about how we might productively advance this science. And um, a research group led by a physician near Barzilai at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and his many colleagues, including Jay Shansky in Chicago, uh, Steve Ostad um, in Alabama, um, and others uh, have, have really sort of performed a heroic effort in uh, getting the first trial of uh, geroprotective therapy launched. And, you, um, and your listeners may be familiar with the drug metformin, which is uh, used today to treat type 2 diabetes. Um, it turns out to have some, some fairly promising properties as a drug that might slow the biological process of aging. Um, and Dr. Barzilai and his colleagues uh, have designed and are now launching the first randomized trial that will give this drug to older adults who have no more than one chronic disease, which can't include type 2 diabetes. Um, and they're going to follow them for several years to test whether receiving this drug uh, prevents the onset of new chronic conditions. Uh, they're also going to be exploring 
how biomarkers, including biomarkers such as the ones we're developing, um, may be used to track the effectiveness of uh, metformin as a therapy. And, and the hope is that this trial can provide a template for future trials of uh, drug interventions, but also behavioral and lifestyle interventions that, that we hope may have parallel. Yeah, so I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a background for those of you listening. I think you already know Dr. Barzilai because he's been uh, such a big part of our own conference, Metabesity Conference, and, and the institute that I tell you all about all the time for longer, healthier aging. But uh, Dr. Belsky gave you a perfect, a perfect uh, synopsis of the TAME trial that's going on right now. Now, it has been stopped a little bit because of COVID, but the fact is that metformin, and as Dr. Belsky said, many of you take it for diabetes, also might be a geroprotector. And that's a word you have to learn. Geroprotecting means that we get protected from some things like excessive inflammation, uh, lower immunity, all the things that are killing us right now as older adults when it comes to COVID. Metabesi and other drugs might help um, intervene in that, but we don't know because they're used for a particular disease. That would be diabetes, and they've been used for 60 years. So this study by uh, Dr. Uh, who he likes to be called Dr. Neer, um, and he is the one we've talked many times who's done a centenarian study. I've been to his lab. I've seen his mice, his spliced mice that are actually getting younger from the blood of younger mice. It is actually happening. So that's what I mean when I say that we're at a tipping point of changing the way we age and culturally thinking differently about aging. Uh, Dr. Belsky uh, is an epidemiologist, and he is with the Columbia uh, Mailman School of Public Health. I want to talk about the translation of some of these things from the bench to the park bench, uh, the research bench to the park bench when we come back. And what it really means if we can tell the pace of our own personal aging, will it change our behaviors? Will all of the changes come in a pill? Or will it be more nutrition, exercise, and everything we should know already that we ought to be doing? We'll be right back. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and we are back. We are back with Dr. Daniel Belsky. Now, Dr. Daniel Belsky, let me set the stage again for him personally. Uh, he is an assistant professor of epidemiology over at Columbia Mailman School, and uh, he's also a researcher at the Butler Columbia Aging Center. That was what started my life, actually, in, in, at a very advanced age. I was, oh, almost 60 years old, I think. Uh, and uh, for many, many years, what they called the financial gerontologist. I looked at how people age and pay for it. But I got very involved with the issues of aging. And, of course, I was a journalist already. And Dr. Butler had what he called a fellowship program for journalists in the field of aging. And it, everything opened up to me. I began to understand geroscience a little better, my own personal aging. And now we have, now we have research, very credible research, 
that could end with a very simple blood test that you would be able to take. It's not available now. Don't get too excited, but it will be. There's no doubt in my mind that researchers like Dr. Belsky and, and, and his collaborators will come up with a way for us to see how quickly we are aging. And not just starting at age 60, 70, or 80, but in our 20s and our 30s. And uh, we should be able to do something about that. So let me throw that over to you, uh, Dr. Belsky. Let's, let's talk about the end game here. Uh, it's in the stores now. We can go there and for $29.99, we can find out how well we are aging. Is it a pill that we take? Is it exercise and behavioral protocol? What's your vision in the use of this? So I think that there are sort of three tiers of applications of tests to measure the pace of biological aging. And the first level of test uh, that we're going to use is in the context of randomized trials of new pharmacological and behavioral therapies to slow aging. So we're going to use these, drug, uh, th these, these tests, these measurements as part of our science to develop an armamentarium of therapies uh, to modify biological processes of aging. Uh, the second level of application is going to be at the level of public health, where we're going to use tests like these to monitor populations and study the effects of changes in the environment, changes in public policy uh, that may shape how societies age. Uh, and then the third level of application will ultimately be uh, at the level of the, the patient and physician in a doctor's office uh, where tests can be taken uh, and uh, individuals can receive specific advice about their case from a medical professional based on a result from a test like this. Um, I, I continue to have some reservations about the prospects for direct-to-consumer measurements of this kind. Um, it's possible that someday we will have tests that will be as easy and straightforward to interpret as your weight on a scale. Um, but I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm less optimistic uh, that we'll have something that is quite that simple uh, quite that soon. Nevertheless, uh, at the point that we do have a point of care test that your doctor can give to you that will tell you something about your rate of aging, um, my expectation is that the first set of interventions that will be recommended to people who may be aging more rapidly than they would like uh, are behavioral. You're going to get exactly the same advice you get now. Eat less, move more, quit smoking, uh, breathe fresh air, drink clean water. Um, those are the things that we'll do first to help regulate the pace of aging in people. And it is my hope that being able to distill the many different kinds of health information uh, that physicians are already collecting from their patients into a single and easy to understand number will improve the effectiveness of clinical guidance about you healthy know, behavior. The, I just I want to uh, say one thing here that I think is so important for everybody to, to realize and understand, and, and I don't think it's controversial. Um, when the doctor is able to tell you about your own pace of aging, it's a little bit more than that that you are doing. It's not so much how quickly you're aging, but they will also be able to tell you why, why there's an issue, what the issue is. 
And what I've been learning personally from interviewing folks at the National Institute on Health and National Institute on Aging is that they're in 234 different um, clinical trials on Alzheimer's. 100 of them, Dr. Belsky, is about behavioral health, not a pill. And what they're hoping to do is actually get a prescription to a doctor, from your doctor, I should say, for your behavioral health. In other words, it isn't simply do exercises, you know, get, get on the treadmill, walk. We all know that. You're absolutely right. We don't do it, but we all know it. But maybe, maybe with your test and these precision behavioral prescriptions, people will actually change their behavior. When they see that they're aging differently or not as efficiently as they could, and they have some specifics as to what to do about it, more than just eat right, Mediterranean diet, fast once a week or whatever it is, maybe it'll make a real change in, in our personal behaviors. That's the connection here that, that I'm waiting for. See, I have no doubt you're going to come up with the test. I'm not so sure about us and whether or not we're going to use it in a way that will make us healthier longer. And I think it is important to be healthier longer. So I'm sorry for, for interrupting, but that's my pitch. That I'm trying to make that connection between the way people feel about themselves and their desire to age well and all the wonderful geroscience that's coming up and is, is around us. So, so that issue of the point of, uh, at which we learn about our own faster pace or slower pace might be in the doctor's office, but the question is, what are we going to do about it? So uh, I wanted to make that point. And please go ahead, because what you're telling us is new to most people and very exciting to most people. Well, I think, I mean, I think we're on the same page that uh, behavioral interventions are the low-hanging fruit here, are the way that most people will be advised to intervene on their own pace of aging. Uh, I think there are a range of drugs that are under development, um, which will ultimately be available um, and, and may be delivered to people. Um, I think we're still a long way from knowing what safety and efficacy look like, particularly in, in the case of early and sustained administration of these drugs. So if we were to give them to people who are young adults or in midlife, or if they'll only be appropriate for people who are, are already of advanced age, um, I think we're just at the beginning of understanding what managing human aging with drugs will look like. But I think we already know enough uh, to see substantial promise in the potential to manage human aging uh, with various kinds of behavioral interventions. And I think where my particular interest lies as we think about what are we going to do about it if we know how fast people are aging um, is really in the domain of public policy and programs delivered to communities rather than specific behavioral prescriptions to individuals. Um, I think that, that one of the challenges we face in designing our societies to promote healthy aging is that we only observe uh, the worst consequences of unhealthy aging when people are at the ends of their lives, uh, when in fact the opportunities for intervention are much greater and can have much larger impact um, if they're delivered when people are still young. Uh, but we don't have good tools to measure the impacts of those kinds of systemic changes. Uh, and I think that has impaired our development of effective policies to promote 
healthy aging in society. Uh, and so that's a, a challenge that we're hoping we can help to address with uh, development. And when we come back, we have to talk about things like blue zones. Remember blue zones, folks? We talked about the book. We had the author on. Uh, and that is part of our public health. But also my difficulty in convincing folks in their 20s and 30s to start thinking about their own aging. Many years ago, I was asked to do a blog, and I have a blog, and I hope all of you will go visit that blog. It's called Aging for Beginners. I wasn't and didn't want to write for 50s, 60s, and 70-year-olds. But now maybe because of Dr. Belsky, I'll have something interesting that will actually engage folks in their 20s and 30s. When we come back, we'll talk about translation of all of this into public health. And uh, since it is a big focus of Dr. Belsky himself, uh, what he'd like to see if he could wave a magic wand and change some of the public policies that we encounter every day and may not even realize they're impacting on our health and on our aging. Don't you go anywhere. For my age, da 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 da, da 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 da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me not even a bit, cause I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age, da 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 da. And hello, 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 we are back, and this is Adrian Berg with Generation Bowl, the fountain of truth about aging. Just a little bit of housekeeping. Please go ahead to adrianberg.com slash contact, or you can go on our radio website, and that is generationboldradio.com. Give me your email address, and you will get our free Monday newsletter. Uh, this week that just passed, it's not too late because we resend it every Wednesday. Uh, we taught you how to see Broadway online. We talked about a wonderful book for your kids and your grandkids. We talked about a 5K that I will be virtually running and how you can help kids who've lost a parent and are in grief. And we've talked about two ways that you personally can become an artist while you're sequestered. So there's always hints and tips about aging, including this week, we talked about fasting. And we talked about functional exercise on our newsletter and sent you to some great resources. And, you know, that's a great bridge to uh, our guest today. Uh, you know, Dr. Daniel Belsky is a researcher. He's an epidemiologist. And uh, he's with Columbia Mailman School, as well as the Butler Columbia Aging Center. Uh, he's worked with colleagues at Duke University and collaborated on a, on a, a wonderfully important paper in 2015. But now it's gone a lot further to uh, research on a test, a blood test, that actually tells us not how old we are biologically, you've heard of those before, the biomarker tests and so on, but the pace of our aging. And the pace of our aging can be changed. It can. It can be reversed. It can be delayed. It can make us healthier. It can make our community richer because we cost less in healthcare. It can make our families happier because they don't have to become caregivers to us for so many years in the years to come. And in fact, it can make us even sharper at work. So there's a lot of great benefits for understanding how you're aging and doing something about it. And that's why I keep telling you about nutrition, 
about behavioral health and so on. But Dr. Belsky goes a lot further than that. There can be medications that will make a change here. It can be many things. But one of the three levels of uh, that Dr. Belsky told us about in terms of understanding the pace of aging that is very global is understanding public health and public health policies. And Dr. Belsky, I know when I asked you, what did you want to bring out? The first thing you said to me was, you wanted to make a connection between poverty and aging. And I think you should. I think this is the place for people to understand that it's not all about your genetics. It's about a lot about your environment. Explain that to us. Sure. Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about a, a favorite subject. Um, you know, I think we all understand that our genetics have something to say about our rate of aging, uh, how long we live, how healthy we live. Um, it's worth noting that uh, when we do studies of twins uh, to compare genetically identical twins to fraternal twins who only share 50% of their DNA, the same as normal siblings, uh, we find that only about 20% of the variation in lifespan can be attributed to genetic differences between people. Um, and in recent years, uh, there are uh, estimates that, that that fraction may be even smaller. Um, so certainly our genetics have something to say about how we age, uh, but the environments that we live in uh, and our behaviors that are shaped by those environments um, often have a lot more to say over the course of our lives. Um, what got me into this business of studying aging to begin with was the observation that aging behaved in many of the same ways as lifelong social disadvantage, poverty, discrimination, um, in inducing a wide range of different chronic diseases uh, that accumulated as people grew older um, and that were caused by a set of biological changes characterized by dysregulation of the immune system and of our metabolism. Uh, and it turned out I wasn't the first person to have had this idea that there could be a connection between the biological process of aging and what we call in the social and behavioral sciences, the biological embedding of social disadvantage, uh, beginning with um, the MacArthur networks on aging um, uh, and, and continuing to today, there, there's a whole industry of research investigating how experiences of poverty, privation, um, and, and discrimination may drive uh, an aging process in people's bodies. Um, and one of the applications of tests like the ones we're working to develop uh, that I'm most excited about is in evaluating the impact of policies and programs that seek to change the economic conditions of people's lives on their health. Uh, previously, those kinds of programs could be evaluated only at great remove because we might try and lift families out of poverty with a housing program or a cash assistance program, uh, but evaluating their health would take many more years than the duration of the standard trial. Uh, and it was difficult to keep people enrolled in studies or to fund evaluations of their health over the long term. Um, with tools that can measure the pace of aging, uh, my hope is that it will become possible to measure the impact of these programs in real time and therefore provide our policymakers uh, with a new set of calculations to assess cost benefit uh, of these kinds of economic programs. Because 
if our interventions to lift people out of poverty also prevent or delay uh, the substantial healthcare costs associated with developing chronic diseases in later life, they will, uh, to a much greater extent than they already do, uh, pay for themselves and, in fact, generate savings in the future. Um, I think one of the things that uh, is, is very important to me in thinking about how we study the biological process of aging and how we evaluate candidate measures of it is that these measurements register the impact of exposures that we know shorten healthy lifespan. Um, and you had mentioned before, there are a number of candidate biomarkers out there of some kind of a biological age. Um, but in many cases, these biomarkers are studied only uh, to the extent that they can predict some outcome in the future, and, and often not always that well. Um, but less attention is paid to whether they themselves register the exposure histories of individuals that we already know place them at greater uh, or lesser risk for early onset of chronic disease and mortality. Um, and so that was a consideration we paid close attention to in our efforts to develop this new test uh, was that not only could it look forward into the future uh, and inform on how soon a person was likely to develop a chronic disease or how long they were likely to live, uh, but also that it carried the history of a person in that it was recording faster aging in people who had experienced life histories that we knew uh, were associated with greater risk for disease and shorter healthy lifespan. And then finally, uh, the third condition, of course, that, that it was something that could be modified. Um, and, and that third question is one that we haven't answered yet, but we are on the verge of answering. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the wonderful we'll things an here, and I'm not 100% sure that you thought of it in exactly the way I'm expressing it, but we are also learning through the kinds of tests you're doing what poverty is. Now, let me go back to that for a minute. We know that poverty and abuse makes people older faster. We know that. And you are proving it for sure. But you're also taking a deep dive into what the actual conditions of their life were that we call poverty or we call abuse. So this morning, Dr. Belsky, I was actually um, reading some material from a group I belong to called the NGO on Aging for the United Nations. And we're all about age equality. And when you look at different countries and you look at different cultures, you see that if I made a list, we would call many of those people poor. Why? They don't have the kind of house we're talking about. They don't have the kind of food we're talking about, but they live a very long time because poverty is not only about what you have. See, we, we tend to think of it as a quantifiable item, but it's a qualifiable item. And I think that what you're finding may have a lot to do with us understanding better what a rich, and I don't mean this in, in money only, a rich biological lifestyle is and what it means. And it can have such an impact on public policy across the board, even beyond healthcare. And healthcare is a big enough thing to, to deal with. So I, I'm just very excited about the, the fact that we're getting so holistic about looking at this and that from the researcher's point of view, yours, in your three levels, you mention you mention public health and even um, the way we all as counties, countries, and communities look at health. We come back, we're going to talk about something a little bit more mundane 
What's in your closet? What do your, nutri- your nutraceuticals and your supplements look like? Dr. Belsky has plenty to tell us about that. My mother used to say she has the healthiest closet in America. Well, let's see if uh, let's see if any of these things really work. Don't you go anywhere. And hello, 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 and this is one of those shows on Generation Bold, the fountain of truth about aging that I never want to end. Unfortunately, we have a lot to get through in the last segment of our show. I'm here with Dr. Daniel Belsky. Now, he's a, a, an epidemiologist. He is a assistant professor over at Columbia Mailman School and researcher at the Butler Columbia Aging Center. Uh, he is at the center of a blood test a blood test that will tell us not our biologic age alone. We have a couple of those around. And after all, what's the good of that if we know that, you know, 60 is the new 30? So what? But how are we aging? What is the pace of aging? And that is what is being looked at right now on a micro level for us as individuals to do something about that through our physician and on a macro level. What can countries, communities, counties do? for public health. So this is a really substantial piece of research. And if you want to know more about it, I, I've, I asked Dr. Belsky and he gave us some suggestions. I'll give you just one quick one of my own. Go to connexum.com, K-I-N-E-X-U-M.com, and you can listen to a webcast about how understanding aging uh, helps you understand COVID right now. And one of our speakers was Dr. Nir Barzillai, who was mentioned today by Dr. Belsky. Dr. Belsky, I know you had several other places um, like Afar that you want people to know about and a particular book that came to mind. Uh, Sure. Yeah. You know, thinking about aging being more than the number of years you've been around is in many ways a a big shift for the way we do public policy. Um, And uh, there's a book out recently from an economist, uh, Warren Sanderson and his colleague, Sergei Shcherbov. that talks about and thinks through this shift from measuring societal aging based on the chronological time citizens have been alive uh, to one in which various indicators of their integrity, um, mostly functional, mostly in terms of how they think about themselves, uh, uh, can inform that. And, and you know, they're making the point that you made in the previous segment about how even countries that we might think of as demographically quite young uh, may in fact be biologically much older, um, and so I think it's a it's a nice resource, particularly for those of you um, who are interested in uh, you know the nitty gritty of the math behind some of these things. Um, being an economist, uh, Sanderson and, and his colleague Sherbov uh, have provided us not only with a plain English explanation of what's going on, uh, but also the equations to back it up. Um, so that's a little plug for a, a book by a very eminent colleague. Um, I think the other thing that I had mentioned, right, was was just um, the, the American Federation for Aging Research is a great clearinghouse of the cutting edge in geroscience. And I think they do a nice job of trying to translate that science 
Uh, into, and, you know, one of the things um, we try to do here, and, and I want to the, say this loud and proud, is we try to get unique resources to the average individual who might be listening to this podcast or reading my blog or my books or whatever. And afar, this is what Dr. Belsky is talking about, the American Federation of Aging Research um, does webcasts. They do webinars. They do uh, programs that really you can understand. They're not only for general scientists. So when there is an AFAR a conference, I'm always posting it. Now, I'll give you an example. There was one last week that had to do with exercise. And Dr. Nir Barzillai was on there and uh, several others. And they, they told us, they told us very much how we should exercise, what we could do. There was even a demonstration by a geroscientist from her kitchen uh, showing us what she does. Uh, and to keep herself stronger during sequestration. So don't think that all of these resources are only for people in the medical field. Some of them are really, as my friend Dr. Zan Fleming of Connexum would say, very retail, but you wouldn't know they're there. And that's basically why Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth About Aging, is there, to give you this information. So a plug for us, and everything is always free, even our newsletter, uh, we'll have this information for you every single Monday and Wednesday. And all you have to do is go to generationboldradio.com or my website, adrianberg.com. Give me your email address and you'll get all this information. Now, let, let's go back, Dr. Belsky. Um, we have talked about my mother's closet many times. In fact, I think I'm going to do a, a podcast or a blog on it called My Mother's Closet. She had vitamin D, vitamin C, everything you could think of. But what was interesting about her was she started to do that maybe in the 1950s. And today you could go to Walgreens or Rite Aid and you could pass out just looking and trying to decide which omega-3 pill you're going to take. Now, all of this has to do with our quest for popping a pill for healthy aging. We really don't know. These are not FDA-approved nutraceuticals or or supplements, they are on the top shelf, they get a lot of shelf space, more than good food. I have to ask, I mean, what's your take on that? Good news, bad news, is there a way for us to know what's right? Well, I think uh, uh, it's good news that people are paying attention to their aging uh, and that they're interested in doing the best they can to take care of it. Um, I think that uh, I at least have some significant reservations about the way many of these products are being marketed to consumers. Uh, they don't have a strong evidence base. It doesn't mean that they don't work, um, but uh, it does mean that we should be cautious in, in how we use these things. Um, I think it makes sense to consult with a physician uh, before you start taking any kind of a supplement. Um, and I think that it's important to remember that none of these supplements can substitute for the kinds of healthy lifestyle behaviors we all know we're already supposed to be engaging in. Uh, so if you are uh, leading a healthy lifestyle and you're looking for something else to do, uh, then I think that talking to your primary care physician um, about what might you consider taking uh, is, is a reasonable step. Um, but I think that we need to be very careful in how we evaluate the claims that are being made by the people who are marketing these supplements. Um, and I think we need to be on the lookout for evidence uh, of genuine effectiveness before we uh, spend our scarce resources you know, or encourage I, um, other people to I, do I'm so. I'm not a consumer on, advocate. On therapies, uh, which I'm a lawyer, untrue. but don't hold that against me. And I used to be in 
consumer area for a long time. So I, I'm not the consumer reports, but I have a personal prejudice, and I'm going to say this as a prejudice. I'm not crazy about supplements where there's a subscription program. Uh, and I'm not crazy about supplements that are sold through network marketing. That doesn't mean they're not wonderful or good. And there's some that I even take myself. But that's one of my cautions. Just make sure that the money behind it isn't being spent more on marketing than on research. And that's not such an easy thing. But with uh, Google around, you can. You can take a look and see what's really in something, what the reviews are, uh, where it comes from. And always ask this question, que bono? Who benefits? Uh, when you start to take a supplement. Otherwise, I do take them. There's no doubt about it. And I tell everybody what I take all the time. And if anybody's interested, I'll, I'll, I'll let them know. I'll do a blog on that too. Uh, but, but let's go back now, Dr. Belsky, as we come to the, uh, the end of our show. Uh, and I'll ask you the same thing I would ask you if you were a, a, a producer, uh, a movie producer. What's next? You know, they always ask, what's next for you now? But what is? What, what's the next uh, phase that you're going to be concentrating on right now in your research? Well, there are sort of two things we're up to. One of them is is the continued uh, development and refinement of these blood tests to measure the pace of aging. But the other thing is putting them out into the field uh, and using them to test uh, how different kinds of interventions or exposures may shape the pace of biological aging. Um, and one study I'm really excited about that uh, we're hoping to have results from quite soon is uh, an analysis of the first ever uh, long-term trial of caloric restriction in healthy non-obese humans. Uh, caloric restriction, uh, eating fewer calories while maintaining nutritional sufficiency uh, has long been known to extend healthy lifespan if you are a mouse or a worm or a fly, um, and even from some recent work, uh, if you're a rhesus monkey. Uh, but we haven't yet known whether it can do the same thing for people. Um, the U.S. National Institute on Aging ran this randomized trial over a period of two years to test that question. Um, and we've now conducted a study to generate large molecular data sets from blood samples collected during that trial. Uh, and we'll use those as a first application of this pace of aging test, this speedometer for biological aging, um, uh, in in what we think of as uh, a geroprotective intervention to test whether this intervention can actually slow the pace of biological aging. We had previously used uh, clinical labs from this same trial uh, to generate some suggestive evidence that this had occurred. Uh, people's physiologies uh, appeared to age at a slower rate um, if they were in the intervention arm of the trial, if they were calorically restricted. Um, and now we're going to be able to ask that question at the level of their cells. Um, in other work, we're interested in how uh, social and economic conditions shape the pace of biological aging. And we're pursuing those questions both in the context of observational studies where people are followed across their lives and we can investigate how moving up or down the social ladder may shape the pace of biological aging in young adulthood, midlife, and later life. Um, and we're also interested in measuring well, outcomes we, from trials of economic interventions. Well, it's a big future, and it's a big uh, it, it's a big mandate. Um, so that's, and that's uh, what the future I know holds. that it's going to happen. I'm fascinated by every one of these three projects that you're focusing on. I'm going to have you back on 
as the research uh, progresses. And I have to tell you that uh, we've had Aubrey de Grey, we've had Dr. Lusgarten on here uh, discussing caloric restriction, and that's where the rubber meets the road of research and behavior. So uh, we thank you so much. And, you know, everybody out there, I'm hoping that by the time you hear this show, there'll be no sequestration. Who knows? But the fact is, I always say, get out there, kids, and make it happen. Maybe I'll say, stay in if, or if you have to, but make it happen anyway. This is Generation Bold, the fountain of truth. <laughs> have to, but make it happen anyway.